saw that you guys are doing a publication now at Woodbine. We're, yeah, we're talking about a journal. And I was stoned last night and I had a funny idea for the, the name of the journal. You want to hear it? Yes, please. And it relates to degrowth, I think. <laughs> um, you're going to be jealous I came up with this. Okay, so <laughs> I want to call the journal Hearts after the game, the card game of Hearts. Yeah, I love Hearts, yeah. Because in Hearts, you either have to uh, get the least amount of points mm. Or you want to get zero points, or you want to get all the points and right. shoot the moon. Shoot the moon, yeah. And I think that should be, that's like what we do at Woodbine, I think, is that we try to, like, kind of keep everything at, like, a very horizontal, practical level, you know, not do anything, not burn ourselves out, you know, create the infrastructure to, like, continue this project for a long period of time, Um mm. Until we're dealt the right hand and then we shoot the fucking moon. Shoot the moon. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you mean. Okay. And I, I don't know exactly what I mean, but. <laughs> <laughs> sounds well, I, good. I though. think a kind of title works really well when it sounds a bit strange, but then it takes like one sentence to explain it. And then it, there's kind of like a, you know, mind explosion happening. Okay. Um, Great. So text Matt if you have his number and tell him that the hearts idea has your approval. <laughs> I like it a lot. Cool. Um, all right. So we're going to talk about the growth today. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great time to talk about it because I've heard some snide remarks about it Ooh. on podcasts in our milieu recently. So we're going to talk about the book. The future is Degrowth: a guide to a world beyond capitalism by Tyus Schmelzer, Andrea Vetter, and Aaron Von Sinchen. Did I pronounce any of those names correctly? You did a great job. Okay, thank Damn. you. And we have Aaron with us today. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. You want to just introduce yourself really fast for our listeners? Yeah, uh, my name is Aaron. I, I live in Montreal. Um, usually I am a freelance editor, um, and writer and researcher. Um, my research is normally around the issue of gentrification, um, but I've been involved with degrowth ideas for a while now. And uh, yeah, besides that, I live with um, two fish called Herbert and Marcuse. Cool. Um, and a dog called Pan and my partner Kai. And um, mostly do like uh, housing, tenant organizing in Montreal when I have time. All right. And so this is, it seems to me, the book on degrowth. Let's just start off by saying what is degrowth and why did you write this book? Yeah. So degrowth is the idea that we can have a society um, that achieves well being without depending on uh, economic growth, while at the same time um, the advocating the necessity of, of downscaling material and energy um, use of, of society um, in the present moment. Um, so our book, it's not actually the only the, the the like the book about degrowth there there are many other the books about degrowth that are all pretty good and someone opinion. told me that this is the book 
<laughs> the book. I think I, you can't I say think, that, but that's what I've heard. I think maybe from a leftist perspective, I would say it is maybe. Um, yeah, I'm, I can't. It's say the it's book. You can book. say it. Just it's, say it's the book. Okay? It's the Bible. It's the book. <laughs> it's the good word. Um, we certainly tried to write um, a big book, uh, a, a key book, um, and we started from the perspective that you know there has been a lot of discussion on degrowth, especially kind of in academic um, circles and and quite a few books in academic presses and and one or two that are more um, kind of for the mainstream. But there hasn't been really a book that takes a explicitly starts from the assumption of an anti-capitalist, uh, feminist, anti-colonial position. So um, when some people hear the word degrowth, I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a weasel question, but I'm trying to throw up sort of like what some sense of degrowth is on the left among some people. When people think hear degrowth, they think um, about a, a Malthusian politics, right? One where you're pulling back from the sort of prosperity built by capitalism and trying to, to basically like uh, throw people back to the Stone Age. Stone Age. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this, what do you say to the people who, when they think degrowth, they think like Malthusian economics yeah. and they think about um, the end of uh, comfort and stability and prosperity and instead bringing people back to the Dark Ages? How do you beat the eco-fascism charges? So it's interesting because if, if someone says we are anti-capitalist, no one says, oh, well, on the left, at least, people acknowledge that you can be both against capitalism and pro-progress and, you know, uh, take a lot of things from modernity um, and use it kind of for the public good rather mm-hmm. than for private wealth. Um, but when you say you're anti-growth or degrowth in particular, there's this thing that happens where people just say, oh, like you're against good things. <laughs> like you don't want good things and you're for, uh, you know, it's it gets linked a lot to, you know, uh, Malthusian perspectives around population um, growth arguments. Um, it also gets, you know, people kind of link it to maybe anti-civilization perspectives, um, kind of this deep green uh, position just against everything that exists today, um, which is not at all ever what degrowth has been. But I think it's interesting because basically the elites have convinced just about everybody that um, capital, capital accumulation, which is how we measure economic growth, is basically um, measured through GDP, which essentially is just an indicator of how well capital is being accumulated. Um, so for people on the left to say, um, oh, you're against economic growth, uh, economic growth is a good thing, um, it's kind of funny because it is literally just a measure of capital. Um, what how well capital is doing so it's just kind of a it's I think it points to exactly why degrowth is necessary 
um, because what we're doing is we're challenging that that um, progress equals the accumulation of capital. Mm-hmm. And what makes it really radical, I think, is not just saying, uh, not just critiquing the idea of growth and saying maybe we don't need growth, maybe we can just stay at the level we're at. It's actually saying staying at the level we're at is also bad. We have to actually go down. And mm-hmm. um, to me, I totally agree with that. But uh, I think that's too radical even for a lot of leftists who still believe that the development, that capitalism has to continue to develop to a certain point. More people have to become proletarianized, you know, taken out of, uh, you know, like uh, pre-capitalist uh, social relations and conditions um, because that's what's best uh, for people and also just for the chances of socialism forever existing. And that's something I, you know, really agree with the way the book challenges. And that's, I mean, the book, I think, tries to answer its critics in a lot of very, like, patient and thought-out ways. Um, but, you know, I like to read b- between the lines, and I think that's really the, the very radical, uh, even revolutionary core of, uh, of your conception of degrowth. Mm. I'm really glad you have that reading and you were able to pick up on that, because I think in the book, it splits... <laughs> A bit between being a bit of a manifesto in the beginning and then um, kind of a textbook almost on like degrowth ideas and then at the end more of a proposal like a, a kind of degrowth uh, utopia um, but you know there wasn't a lot of space to go into like some of these discussions that are really central to uh, communist perspectives around, um, you know, the necessity of the development of capitalism for achieving communism, um, the role of technology in uh, communism, uh, that kind of stuff. We, you know, we just don't go into that too much. Um, But I think it is something that, um, you know, the role of the state within a transition to a communist society, like all that stuff, um, I think is more um, between the lines. So this is for a more general sort of verso lay readership then? I think, I think like, you know, um, really what we try to do with this book is there's this whole discussions that have, lasted a few decades now um, that have happened in uh, primarily in Europe, but also through kind of the European um, environmental justice community and their connections with Global South um, communities and struggles um, where there have been these incredible conversations happening and, and and something we really wanted to do was to bring that forward to an anglophone audience um just kind of relay a lot of these conversations that have been going on um that i often honestly find missing especially in a in a u.s perspective um would you call degrowth like a set of policy proposals is it like an economic framework is it a critique of economics like (laughs) what exactly is degrowth how does it fit in as an idea you know, I gave this definition of degrowth as the idea that w- we can achieve well-being while not depending on economic growth as a society. Um, 
but I think it kind of goes deeper than that. As I said, there's just been this like enormous conversation that has many different parts to it um, with people coming from all kinds of directions. Like you have maybe more like labor movement centered um, people, people more from anarchist backgrounds, um, more some more from like kind of a more liberal environmental background even. Um, but there's been this conversation around a cluster of ideas called degrowth, um, which we kind of try to synthesize as both a proposal and a critique. Um, so degrowth is a missile term that is a intentionally provocative that allows really difficult conversations to be had. People get really riled up when they hear the word, and that's kind of why we use it. Mm, is you're trolling people? It is. It is high level trolling. You um, should have called the book "Degrowth." You mad, bro? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's kind of why we picked the title like "The Future Is Degrowth" because it's this kind of like uh, it. It it's a bit surprising where people are like, "What? Um, this can't go on forever." <laughs> You can't expand infinitely. Um, but I think like the main reason people get mad is they see it as this sort of first world neurosis where it's like, well, we have so much, you know, I, you know, we we're so mm-hmm. wasteful. We're using plastic straws and, you know, they, they see it connected to this like particular kind of metropolitan uh, uh, ascetic, you know, lifestyle based sort of ad buster environmentalism consumerist sort of vibe too. Yeah. Meanwhile, most of the world does not live like we do and could never afford to consume a fraction of what we consume. And the, so the idea is that degrowth is putting out this uh, even austerity standard for the entire world. Whereas most of the world deserves to have uh, some of the comforts that we have like air conditioning, for example. Well, I think in the book, we really push against that um, idea of degrowth. And I wouldn't deny that there are those in the degrowth movement who kind of come from that perspective. Um, But I think as with anything, you know, you have similar kind of very wide divergences in socialist movements as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, with people obviously having way more kind of bourgeois takes on what socialism looks like. but in in the book, we really push against that idea of degrowth, and I think there's a lot to be said that like ba- basically most like kind of central positions of degrowth are are very much against that. Like it was always about um, equity and and redistribution of wealth and um, global justice was like always at the center of the movement. So. Yeah, I think one thing that um, I've been reflecting a lot on as as since the book has come out and I've seen, you know, that kind of argument again and again, you know, there's basic things that we can say where it's like, well, austerity is always um, for this pushed on to us for the sake of growth. Mm. You know, people don't uh, politicians don't say that we should have austerity um for less growth that so like degrowth is literally the opposite of austerity because it's about um actually building a economic system that does not depend on growth to achieve 
well-being. Um, so in that sense, I do think that like maybe um, in the kind of negative framing that the word evokes, um, a lot goes missing, um, which is why degrowth proponents like actively push for a kind of vision of of what we in the book call public abundance, which is where you know you could actually have a system that is completely um, structured around public wealth, around um, actually not creating value in the private market, like relying on value in the private market as that being the guarantor of well-being for people in society, but as just having a basic system of of um of resources available for everybody and um yeah so you mentioned air conditioning like it's entirely possible for um us to create cities that like actually approach um being cool as a matter of public health um but also as and we're not as talking about williamsburg <laughs> uh can we uh, no not williamsburg not I mean, cool in uh, that way being yeah. uh being actually not burning our our, our skin burning alive mm -hmm. within climate change um so for example here in montreal in almost every neighborhood we have swimming pools that in four years ago they've just made freely available for everybody as a public health measure Mm -hmm. um, but you could extend that where you could say uh, in social or cooperative housing, you have whole areas uh, you have, you're starting to be able to put in like systems at large scales of staying cool, of air conditioning. Um, if you structure, if you like restructure society, you can actually have all this public abundance um, for everybody that is available for everybody the only thing is that it just can't um be uh it has to be taken out of the market you can't depend on the market for that yeah it's uh it's interesting you bring up markets because um you know i i feel like um fundamentally of course uh where degrowth is a shot across the bow is uh not just in uh, accumulation um, as the sort of central locus of uh, economic activity in society, uh, but also to, of course, uh, the role of markets in distributing uh, profits and, and wages. Where does, in your particular vision that you, in this book of, uh, of degrowth, where do markets stand? Mm. That's another one of those questions that I think we, we worked to give um, kind of an assessment of what the degrowth literature has said and what, um, like, kind of bring it together in a proposal. Um, but, like, there wasn't a section of the book where we said, here is where markets stand in degrowth. Mm. Uh, but you could kind of piece it together um, where essentially we're arguing that markets um, fail to be the kind of guarantor of well-being um, precisely because they, uh, they're structured around pri privatized wealth. So, yeah. 
So anti-market. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess fundamentally. Or, yes, or maybe like, markets or, or you're arguing for like um, uh, public wealth um, in most spheres of, like, of necessities, uh, housing and you know, food and commodities of that sort, but then perhaps a market outside of that. Yeah, I don't think we go that far because there's just like that at that point you're there's a lot of like um details that would need to be sorted out um by a like, revolution. <laughs> by a revolution. <laughs> but w- we do start from the basis that um you know, we we kind of really structure a lot of the degrowth proposal around um, you know, what you could call universal basic services, where you just have the things you need available for everyone who needs it. Um, and that would actually just tank uh, costs of of living and tank the real dependence on kind of the cash nexus, um, to use like a, a Marxist mm-hmm. term, which, you know, you could today call it a credit nexus where like you just no longer have to depend on the market but like you know there could be room for quite a lot of um market adjacent activity like i i think personally um you know i i, I studied um like one of my specialties and i've 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 done a lot of research there was in in vietnam where you did have a communist state, but um, a lot of things started really getting uh, difficult for the state when they basically criminalized informal activity where people were, you know, gardening in their backyards mm. and trying to trade vegetables to be able to not have to depend only on these state rations. So, like, there is a lot of creativity that people have in meeting their needs that um, happen through like an informal sector mm-hmm. um, that I think, I mean, this is not at all the book, but this is just things that I'm personally interested in um, where, you know, and in the U.S. you have a lot of street vendors who fully depend on that um, for their livelihood, um, but also are, are an essential part of a lot of communities. Um, well, it, what is and, in the book is there's this tension between the sort of organic mass movement of people and the, the natural creativity of people to like organize themselves in the way that they want to live and do the kind of work that makes sense to them to do instead of what they're commanded to do mm-hmm. by the market um, and the the state uh, and you you know quoting or like drawing on Eric Olin Wright in your the later chapter about how to like actually how you actually see degrowth uh arriving or playing out you see you you argue that it has to sort of come from both places there has to be like this sort of hegemonic acceptance of some of the basic premises of degrowth uh while you know policymakers and politicians and the state um begin to reorganize uh, policy and economics with this in mind. Uh, did, did I get that mostly right? Yeah, that's right. So we kind of argue that a degrowth strategy could ha- have a, a three-pronged strategy. 
as you say, drawing on Eric Olin, right? Um, where we kind of center now topias um, as, you know, utopias that exist in the presence. Um, and that's not just because this kind of common idea that, you know, you just kind of add up all these nowtopias and then uh, that becomes a different society. Um, it's equally, um, if not more, around the education of desire. So like once people start seeing that things can operate quite differently, um, it becomes easier to uh, engage with it on a political level. Um, and you see that a lot in in like a, a city like Barcelona, where you already had this kind of massive movement of like community based initiatives. And that really pushed for a new city government that was like fundamentally organized around the common good um, and democratizing the city. Anyway, so that's now Topia's then you also have what we call um, a counter hegemonic strategy um, and then a strategy of non-reformist reforms where which is this term by andre gortz around um, uh, that they're they may look like reforms and they may look reformist but they actually open the door to a lot basic a, a new way of um a, a new relationship between um, like working people and the ca capitalist class that kind of like opens the gap uh, for more uh, power um, and for democratization of society. Um, and, and so universal basic services would be one example of that. And so where does, uh, where does the working class fit into this writ large? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And in the book, we by no means like answer that. And we don't kind of play into this um, tendency um, around, you know, who is the actor of history, who is like the revolutionary actor today. Um, we kind of just lay out that there has to be a cross um a solidarity across uh, actors to achieve this. Um, there's a few different things I can identify. Like one, which is like you know, the necessity of of building um, working class power is is like absolutely central. Um, but then there's uh, also a question of like where and how. Um, does that power get built? And I think there we're like more kind of, you know, uh, throwing a lot of things out there as ideas, but we didn't really see our job as saying, this is the one, this is the strategy that we need to go for, which is why we really went with that framing that there are many places to intervene. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a very dynamic framing, which is good because I, I feel like a lot of different kinds of people are going to read the book. And I think you have a little bit of something for everyone, like you explicitly say, we're just all working towards it together, which is nice. You're not like very sectarian. 
but I, I'm always like kind of wondering like where the, uh, where your sympathies might lie. And, um, I think I get a little bit of tone towards the end that there does need to be some kind of like revolutionary rupture. And you like evoke Benjamin at one point talking about pulling the emergency brake. Um, but you're also very careful to make explicit that you're not collapsist. You're not, you don't think that like an, uh, a sudden like you know uh, collapse of supply chains and industry is 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 the way to go. There has to be some kind of managed tran- and conscious transition, which obviously mm-hmm. sets sets you apart from like anarcho primitivists or or something like that. Um, but at the same time, you talk about the ZAD in uh, in France, and right now you might know a little bit about what's going on in Atlanta, which is a similar struggle. Um, people occupying the woods to prevent the construction of, in France, it was an airport. In Atlanta, it's this massive police training center and Hollywood soundstage. And um, these occupations were done not just because they're against those things, like they're not just against the airport or the police training center or Hollywood, but they're especially against the, the idea of like removing lots of woods to build these things that we don't need and asserting that there are better ways of life uh, than, you know, continuing to destroy every shred of nature and build, uh, you know, more things to reproduce capitalism as it exists. But, but if I could intervene real quick, and I'm going to put on my hard hat right now, my construction worker hat. You want to build Cop City. That I want to build good Cop City. Jobs. Those are good yeah. union jobs. The, <laughs> the Keystone Pipeline, good union jobs. Uh, right. You know, building a natural gas plant, really, or, or, a liquid, or a liquefied natural gas transfer terminal is really good jobs. This gets to, like, one of the, the issues, I think, is that Andy is describing all of these various movements within an activist milieu where it's like a refusal where there's like a, um, a degrowth sort of uh, incipient sort of degrowth mentality about not destroying nature, about blocking development. Um, you have that on the one hand, and uh, we've seen that so far that's insufficient to have a real anti-capitalist breakthrough. And on the other hand, you have like uh, the fact that private accumulation and growth is at this point in time the wellspring of employment which you know, is obviously something that all of us need to survive as workers, as proletarians. So there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there between like having, you know, activating this revolutionary agent of the working class on the one side, but also arguing that the direct socialized material interests of a worker, you know, their job under capitalism needs to be replaced by something else without maybe a, a transition in between. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you know, this is like just the classic labor versus environment um, dichotomy mm-hmm. where y- these two things get opposed um, as like e- you can't you can't satisfy one without disappointing the other. Um, and also, you know, we are in an economy where um, where it is true that as uh as, uh, you know, GDP goes up, technically, um, there is some kind of like push for more, uh, more industry, more development, um, which then allows pe- more people to get, you know, well-paying jobs, stuff like that. Um, and 
I, I think that's like a really important thing to deal with. Um, however, there are like kind of some complicating things in there where like I, I think a lot about um, economic historian um, Stefania Barca, her work, where she really troubles this kind of relationship between um, this assumption that labor is opposed to environment. Um, for example, she like writes about um, different labor movements in, in southern Italy, where on the one hand you had like the the men workers in the factory kind of going on strike, but then women at home were, uh, you know, going on strike for better wages, but then women at home were often um, organizing and, and pushing against uh, toxic um, contamination of their homes and of, of, of their environment by that same factory. Um, and you have a lot of kind of examples of, of that these things aren't actually um, competing, um, but that there it does necessitate actually paying attention to like what uh, what labor movements are demanding, what they're asking for. Um, another thing I'm I'm thinking about is um, an, a really great article by Bua Ruber Hansen called uh, batshit jobs. So, you, you know, we have bullshit jobs, which are jobs that no one thinks are useful, but you also have batshit jobs, which are actually necessary to the economy, but they're, they're, they're batshit, like they're batshit crazy jobs. Like it's not about guano. <laughs> guano is so I mean, it is, it's about extraction. It's, it's about like you're working at a gold mine, uh, you know, a kilometer um, under the under the earth's uh, under the earth's surface uh and like these are jobs that a lot of people have pride around but that also like will have to go mm -hmm. um and and that that needs to be um dealt with like full force another another thing i'd say around this is that i think you know we kind of focus on that dynamic um, between like the working class and then, you know, let's say a more professional managerial class concerns around the environment, so-called, um, in a U.S. context. But if, if you look at it, and it's kind of assumed that they're not reconcilable, um, but if you look at um, what's happening in, in basically all of Latin America right now, um, where you have these incredible movements that have shifted um, to a real kind of coalition between feminist, indigenous, and working class people mm. towards leftist power. And um, even when they haven't taken, um, haven't won elections, they provide basically the strongest counter power to the state. Um, and I think, yeah, we, we have a lot to learn from that. Um, like the, the victory in Chile was really, you know, there's a lot of issues that go on between the lines, but there is kind of this possibility for articulating a, 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 a common ground between these very different um, interests. Yeah, um, I think Boric and, and Petro in, uh, in Colombia coming in as 
leftists with this kind of ecological mindset is a really interesting development because uh, if you look at Mexico, for example, the leftist president there, Lopez Obrador, is really of this kind of extractivist mold or this more development-minded capitalist mold where, like, for instance, a a big conflict that he has is he wants to build this tourist train. Yeah, the railroad through the Yucatan. Through the Yucatan. And the Zapatistas... So, so like, when he was elected president, the Zapatistas were like, well, we're going to take up arms again. We're not going (laughs) to let this happen. And for me, it's not a difficult question. That train shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. But then more complicated questions come in in, like, Bolivia, for example, where, like, yeah, there's a ton of extractivism in Bolivia under Evo Morales. Do we treat Evo Morales as, like, just another grother? Mm -hmm. Those are really complicated questions that, like, I obviously can't, like, speak to as, as I, like, I just passionately follow politics and I'm just, like, not... Um, well-versed in it, but I do think that we have seen a shift where they are um, articulating, you know, you have this um, kind of movement of of post-extractivist thought, which was very much in line with degrowth thought, and a lot of the same theorists work together with degrowth theorists. Um, But now you have this kind of new pink tide where those are kind of held together and, and we'll see where it'll take us. Like for example, in, in Chile or in, um, in Colombia, um, where, where, you know, the indigenous feminist and like pro poor, uh, issues are like kind of held together as a, as a whole. Um, so I, I think we'll see where it goes. Um, but I, I think it is an exciting time. I like the the title of your book, uh, The Future is Degrowth, because I think it's a factual statement. I think whether that degrowth happens, uh, as you're arguing, in uh, sort of managed terms uh, as part of a class movement in order to fundamentally shift what the quote-unquote economy does, or whether it's just simply through the inertia that we have right now, because as we've argued on this show for a long time now, it seems as though capital itself is reaching its own limits. And of course, um, you know, population, uh, a decline in population increase, which you see anywhere that sort of capitalist developmental processes uh, reach their maturity, uh, means, you know, less population growth means less sort of quote unquote natural growth and accumulation in the economy. And of course, too, the uh, environmental crisis uh, that we're having is going to lead to a lot of uh, what capitalists call sunk assets, <laughs> but literally as, uh, as much of uh, social wealth goes under the water um, or is otherwise u- unusable. So it seems like there's an argument that the future is degrowth either way. It's just a matter of do we continue to try to get more blood out of the stone of like a failing capitalist system or do we try to fundamentally shift the, the, the nature of what, you know, human life and society and wealth even looks like? Yeah, totally. It, that, that's an it's like I so in the book, we actually have a section where we we talk about um, about the role of crisis um and we're quite clear to say that um that degrowth itself is not like degrowth 
as a term has always been defined as like a democratic um, managed scaling down. So like to call a collapse degrowth would be, it's like, it's not what we mean, mm. basically. Um, you know, like there's the slogan, their recession is not our degrowth. Mm. Um, and, um, or, or there's another slogan, um, which basically encapsulates what you just said, um, degrowth by design or by disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're kind of like, well, to say that would be misusing how degrowth is defined. Um, but I do know what you mean um, in that, like, basically all signs point to a um, really catastrophic uh, collapse of, of multiple multiple systems Um, but we're we're living through that right now mm -hmm. i don't even know if we're at the early stages we might just be in it and what we see is a lot of horror and a lot of massive amounts of people have to leave their country or like where they live or their city but we're also seeing people respond to the crisis and sort of changing their lives to meet the crisis as it hits them, like in Puerto Rico, for example, after the hurricane or, you know, mutual aid during the pandemic or, you know, there's a lot of examples of like if an earthquake hits, people go out and clear out the rubble. You know, it's just like a natural instinct. And as we see more and more crisis, we're going to see it disrupt people's lives to the extent that they actually have to permanently change how they're living. Not because, uh, you know, they're, people are just so good hearted or whatever, but like we ha- you, people are going to try to survive one way or another. And I think the solution is going to be more collective than individualist. Like, you know, the, the, the zombie apocalypse fantasy is like you're just by yourself and you have yeah. to kill everything you see yeah. that moves. Very American. But I think the reality of it is people are going to start responding to it in communitary and collective ways, not because, like, they read Marx or they listened to the Antifada or <laughs> they read your book, but because that's actually the most rational solution to watching the economic foundations of the world collapse absolutely and and so we have a section in the book where we talk about this and i think that's kind of we're not saying at all that degrowth um arrives through collapse or as you said through crisis but it's almost as if in these moments you start seeing like the possibilities of um or 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 the the success of certain strategies mm. over others, maybe. Mm. Um, so I, I, you mentioned Puerto Rico and, and COVID-19. So we, yeah, we talk about kind of how people responded through this massive mutual aid um, response to COVID-19. And then we give this example of um, in the city of Ajuntas in Puerto Rico, when Hurricane Maria hit, um, there basically all lights went out. It was total disaster. Um, but there was this one community center, Casa Pueblo, who had 15, 20 years ago, and they're fully democratically run. They run a radio station and they had installed solar panels on their roof, um, basically as a means of, um, of, you know, they were already thinking about this possibility and it was the only lights on in the city Mm. um after the hurricane hit and that's where people went that's that's where people um who who from the hospital 
were sent uh, to keep their dialysis machines running, mm -hmm. to keep their to to be able to um, charge their phones. Um, but that's then also where like the relief effort um, centered around. And and actually the organization had a really huge role in, in kind of allowing to, people to reimagine a recovery um, and and then had a really big role in a lot of the movements against corruption and, and for democratizing and decolonizing Puerto Rico um, that have built up since then. Um, so th that's just an example of like the really important, like even if you are, you know, with let's say three, five people, you start a little center in a moment of crisis that can be, become kind of the pivot point for for uh, change to happen. And that can actually be a space for the um, development of desire around what a democratic society could look like. Um, and then, you know, we, we also go through how uh, moments of crisis can be um, opportunities for non-reformist reforms and building counter-hegemony. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's a really good, um, and I know that in in Woodbine, uh, for example, like as COVID nineteen happened, that became a space where a lot of uh, like community neighborhood centered relief efforts happened. Um, so you're not just relying on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic <laughs> Forum. <laughs> no. <laughs> If you were like invited to speak at Davos or something, <laughs> would you like go? Because this is what you know. Didn't Piketty do that? And like, there's yeah, some like yeah. kind of Varoufakis thinking along these lines that'll like talk to these people. Like, look, this is how it is. W would you do something like that, or would you have any hope that maybe the capitalist class could adopt some of this thinking in some meaningful way? Personally, I wouldn't like focus my energy on that. I think a lot of people focus their energy on that, but like ultimately. Personally, I think a lot of people kind of take for granted that the technocratic slash oligarchic elite are the moving force in history. Mm. Um, and so that's who they think we should speak to. Um, but fundamentally, like the working class is is the moving force in history. Um, bold claim, bold claim. <laughs> though, 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 not always consciously so. Right. Um, yes. So that's kind of where my own interest lies in what? in who to speak to. Um, One, but yeah, I, I think also to that, like, there will be moments when shit hits the fan, and people already enact communism without ever having read about it. Mm. Um, Based. I was going to say one thing that I, uh, I, I think that's true, actually. I'm very profoundly true. One, one, one interesting thought experiment that we've seen in the last year or so was Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Ministry of the Future, where uh, I'm not sure if, have either of you read it? Uh, no, I've read parts of it. Okay, yeah. So, like, I haven't talked about it on the show before, but basically it's, it's Stan wonderful socialist sci-fi stand trying to figure out like a way that humanity gets out of this capitalist climate change mess. And, you know, within this thought experiment slash story slash like very engaging sort of um, 
like analysis uh, of this crisis situation we're in, it's he really he really talks he really describes a lot of what you're talking about the, this interplay between like different social forces, including in in one passage of the book where a bunch of like um, Terry's go to like the equivalent of Davos and they hold like vast like portion of the of the ruling class hostage and like show them fucking propaganda videos and try to basically like you know not not murder them but try to like uh you know bang into their heads that something has to change and it doesn't really work with all of them but it kind of does with some <laughs> of them so i just thought that was an interesting sort of analog to what you're talking about good book yeah yeah, I, I I really I'm a real I really love Kim Stanley Robinson's work, um, particularly as um, he's one of the rare sci-fi writers where the science is ecology. Mm. It's a, a science of ecology, um, which you know Dune. I think that's what made Dune stand out as well. Was it was about an ecological science, um, which often you know people think science fiction it's about like big machines shiny stuff right um but um even the I mars trilogy need... is about the same thing too i'm getting i'm nerding yeah. out right now i'm sorry go on <laughs> i love my sci-fi well yeah i mean the mars trilogy it's it is big big stuff um and that's kind of my you know i also i i want to bracket this in like you know science fiction is is a it's a creative process and it's kind of silly endeavor to be like, I wish it had been more like this. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like I sometimes wish that his work in particular is, is like more um, like, like the protagonists are scientists basically. Mm. Um, and, and like UN officials and, and stuff like that. Um, and uh, though you, you have like, actors who have other roles like you know uh eco-terrorists or whatever um they're not kind of the ones people kind of just discuss the world that they'd like to see and then they like through their technocratic means like make it happen right um though i do think that they're like an incredible um encouragement of of desire and and imagination um, at the same time um. I'm. I brought us down a sci-fi rabbit hole, Andy. You want to get us out of the Kim Stanley Robinson discussion? Yeah, like I said earlier, there's a little something for everyone in this book, in, in, including for for psychos like me. Hmm. And, but another kind of um, subtext that I picked up a little bit at the end was um, something along the lines of what's been called climate Mao. Hmm. Uh, you know, like an international dictatorship of the proletariat Andreas Malm style. you know democratic in like you know the way that whatever every like well, worker state is democratic yeah. uh like you get to elect your local party functionaries <laughs> yeah, and then yeah they get to go into the factories and like tell them how to produce or whatever yeah but basically like an authoritarian degrowth of destroying you know uh the vast majority of capital all this unnecessary production and destruction uh the the anarchy of the market, totally disciplining it to the point where everyone has everything they need, et cetera. And I think this is like, I don't know if it's just because I'm reading Kamat. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 are you familiar with Kamat? 
No. Jacques Camat, uh, who's it, still around, actually. Yeah, he's puttering he's, around in France somewhere. He's yeah, a soissant huitard. He's one of these, like, left communists who um, kind of became anti-civ and, like, moved up to the mountains and still writes. But he wrote something about uh, – he's a Bordigas, and he wrote something about um, a reissue of some of Bordigas' essays recently where he's like, yeah, I'm still a Bordigast because Bordigas' program is that – when the dictatorship of the proletariat takes power, it destroys like a vast quantity of capital immediately. And that's like its first transitional task. Do you, is there like a little bit of an element of that where you do think there has to be some sort of massive, like immediate global coordination of this? Like, do you think that's possible or desirable? It's interesting that you, that you kind of fe- uh, felt that sub subtext. Cause, um, I, I think we don't really answer that question in the book, um, you know, like the role of the state. Um, we obviously say the state must be involved. Um, the role of like a, basically a, a proletarian takeover of, of the state. Um, I don't I don't think we really we, we it's I say it's interesting because like I didn't feel like we were like advocating for that. Um, I think we just left it open. Like, well, like, you know, we have a section called, uh, um, I think it's many things will have to go. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of things will just have to go. Like, we just have this massive infrastructure geared towards um, private wealth and, and uh, material um, extraction. Right, um, but like, um, and I, I, don't, I don't think that you are... I'm t- I'm like reading in uh, a lot to it. I, I agree. But I think that if you, on one hand, you could say like people have to change their relationship to consumption, their relationship to nature, mm-hmm. et cetera, like this consciousness raising thing. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, if you're saying things have to go, there's an implication that someone's going to have to take it. Right. And so this is why this kind of thinking gets so much pushback, mm-hmm. like from the left that we already talked to you, but obviously from the right where you start talking this way people on Fox news are like, they're coming for your hamburgers. Mm, they mm. don't want you to eat hamburgers anymore. And mm-hmm. just immediately you lose, you know, 60, 70% mm-hmm. of the people modestly because not being able to consume what you want is like the most horrific thing. So should <laughs> climate Mao ban hamburgers? <laughs> we talked about this like two weeks ago. Just ask climate Mao first, you know, where is climate Mao right now? We I hope that's the like stupidest little, question um... you get asked uh, for all of your interviews. Should climate Mao ban hamburgers? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a great title for the episode, actually. Oh no! Um, yeah, like I would, I would just say that, like, we absolutely don't, like, we're not in the business in this book, um, or per- in our personal lives either, <laughs> about like creating any kind of blueprints of like what this whole thing would look like. Um, it's, it's just saying that, you know, as if if we want to um, shift to a, a degrowth society, there will have to be like really structural changes and that will have have to do with like our built environment. Um, and that's, we're not like necessarily saying like this will be the agent to do that because um, we're just not there really. Um, but what we did do was identify um, strategies and spaces for agency right now today. Um, Fair. I think the economy has to be destroyed. 
<laughs> right. I think just like the... But we already agreed on that like an hour ago. Yeah, no. I'm just saying like, just like the Ro- Roman Colosseum just moldered for like a couple thousand years. But in the meantime, pieces of it were used to build the Vatican and shit. You know, I think that the destructive tasks exist alongside the rebuilding tasks and like mm-hmm. the reconstruction tasks. So if we imagine... Like, when I say destroy the economy, I, I mean the economy as, like, a separate realm of human existence outside mm-hmm. of stuff. And now I'm getting into, like, Kamat territory, but I truly believe this stuff. That's why I think books like this are really important to interrogate these questions and kind of understand the task before us and all the contradictions that we talked about in between, like, people's material well-being in a place like United States, being able to, like, eat a hamburger without Climate Mao coming in. I'm assuming Climate Mao <laughs> looks like that Burger King mascot guy, the real creepy one. But, you know, Climate... No, he's going to have uh, the Burger King's head, like, you know, on a pike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he will have he will have uh, de- defenestrated and decapitated the Burger King or whatever. I don't know oh, where yeah, I was like going. It's like the Greta on the shelf thing, which was this, like, reproachful Greta Thunberg... Um, elf who, who sits on your shelf and like kind of chastises you for everything you do. I think she would make a great climate now. Yeah, that's <laughs> she's so intense and she's she's, intense. she's she's plotting it right now. She came and she saw you know the people are not ready yet for my message, right? And now she's like studying Hegel. She's... <laughs> and she's gonna she's like I've got fifteen years to become climate now. I love it. She's going to unite with Jacques Kamat. She's she's <laughs> gathering the peasant armies in uh, Norway. <laughs> That's a good good place. As good a place as any to end. <laughs> any last thoughts, Aaron? We've put you through a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably no, the most bad shit interview you'll really, get. A conversation I've been really looking forward to because because there's you know a lot of things that I'm passionate about. Um, that are questions that you talk through a lot on your podcast around, you know, around these questions um, and but also allowing a bit of openness between different positions, you know, from from more uh, anarchist to like autonomous to then like Leninist um, communist positions. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I think those are the you know, those are the things that I get geeky about. Um, but that, you know, are, as you said, kind of subtexts in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of things you could draw from it. And I, I look forward to like more conversations where, um, you know, once we have like, okay, degrowth is on the table. There's at least quite a few people who are in, interested in this. Um, how do we go from there, um, from, from a perspective of, of, you know, how to deal with questions of the state, how do we deal with questions of the market um, around the power of of working class movements, um, the necessity of extractivism, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks a lot for joining us. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, And yeah, have a good rest of your Sunday. This is great stuff. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much, Andy and Sean. Cool.